It's a real pleasure to welcome our first guest to the program back to our show. He is Dr. Joel Lection, who is an associate professor in family and community medicine at the University of Toronto, also an emergency physician with the University Health Network in Toronto. Dr. Lection, welcome back, sir, and good morning. Thanks, Sterling. It's good to be here. It's great to have you back, Dr. Joel. It's, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this article you've written recently at the conversation about Canada's overseas vaccine obligations. But let's uh, take a moment, if you don't mind, and uh, because we haven't checked in with you for several months, Dr. Lection, uh, and you're in a, in a province with slightly different lockdown considerations than we're enjoying here in BC. And uh, today is a bit of lifting of restrictions in Ontario. Are you a golfer, for example? Not since I was a teenager. And uh, But golfers uh, will be rejoicing and tea times will be all booked across the province today. That uh, is, as I understand it, they're, uh, they're being allowed to play golf uh, in, in Ontario today. Talk to us a little bit, if you would, though, just about the restrictions and Ontario's vaccine rollout so far. Um, so Ontario is lifting restrictions. They're opening up some outdoor activities, splash pads, golf courses, tennis courts. Um, we still aren't allowed to dine on, in, on outdoor patios. Hmm. Um, so, and, but they are allowing gatherings now of up to, I think it's five people. Mm-hmm. So there are some, there's some easing. And um, from a medical point of view, um, I'm, reasonably happy with the approach that they're taking, which is a three-phase approach um, with 21 days in between each phase to see whether or not the um, what they're allowing is causing um, an increase in cases so that they um, hopefully will make adjustments in what's going on. Um, there are a lot of people who are arguing that Schools should be reopened. Mm-hmm. Um, my kids are out of school, so it doesn't affect me personally. But um, I think that allowing schools to reopen would have been a good idea. I think that the um, the number of cases that are in schools is pretty low. And I think a lot of people would have appreciated having their kids back for the last month of the school year. Mm-hmm. So uh, as far as the uh, vaccine uh, rollout is going now, we're saying in Canada uh, this week, and in fact, I believe it was either Thursday or Friday, as a country, we passed the United States in terms of per capita vaccination on the first shot. However, we're, we're dropping the ball in terms of comparisons, if we insist on, on, on doing that to ourselves, uh, is, of course, where the states is light years ahead of us in terms of numbers of fully vaccine, vaccinated citizens, as in individuals who have had both shots. They're up into the 40 percent range there, and we're at three and a half percent on the fully vaccinated side. So we got a lot of catching up to do in that regard. Are you um, satisfy is a difficult word to use, but are you okay with the with the pace of rollout now in Ontario? Yeah, I think Ontario is is doing pretty well. In fact, I was just listening to the um, to the radio before you called, um, and <clears throat> Ontario is um, now allowing children twelve and over to be vaccinated. Right. Yep. Um, we are going to be using up the um, 50,000 doses of AstraZeneca 
that are sitting in a fridge giving the second doses to people who got a first dose of AstraZeneca, which from my reading, um, getting a second dose is quite safe. Um, and my wife will certainly be happy because that was she got her first dose for, from AstraZeneca. Mm-hmm. So she's, she's looking forward to getting a second dose. Um, I think that overall Ontario is now at about 55% um, in terms of individuals um, 18 and over getting a, um, a first dose. First shot. And yep. I think that we're going to be looking at um, increasing that significantly. But the, um, the difference between Canada and the United States points to um, the fact that the U.S. manufactures um, vaccines domestically and right. we don't. One of the things that has come up in in again now we're we're sort of leaning towards and uh, and I should let let my listeners know that uh, one of the reasons that you're back with us is because you've written a new piece at theconversation.com which is entitled Canada is virtue signaling while waffling on global access to COVID-19 vaccines. And so we've sort of crossed the line from the Ontario update into your recent article, Dr. Election, about our obligations abroad. And, and one of the things that has come up in conjunction with all of this, and I'd appreciate a moment or two of your time to just talk about it, is this whole notion of patent limitations. And uh, one of the reasons you talk about uh, the Americans and the Brits being quite a bit ahead of us, in terms of vaccines, especially fully vaccinated percentages of the population in both countries, you're right. They have domestic vaccine production capabilities. We have zero. Now we're beginning to open up some possibilities now, but we began the pandemic with zero. So talk to us a little bit, if you could, please, about the the notion of, uh, of, of the vaccine patent protection. Well, sure. It's I mean, there, there are a whole series of things that are actually protected. So va- patents are one of them. But with vaccines, you need more than just um, the patents to be able to produce them uh, properly. You also need the technical know-how, which is not contained in the patents. This is, these are um, trade secrets. So you can think about it in terms of um, baking um, or cooking Uh, a meal, you have a recipe and the recipe says, put in a pinch of salt. Well, what's a pinch of salt? And it says, um, stir until thickened. Well, how thick should it be? And these are things that you learn about as you do them. You pick up these, um, you pick up the, these techniques Mm -hmm. and the same goes with, um, making vaccines. You, you need to, understand all the technical know-how and besides the patents that are being hoarded by the um the drug companies it's also the technical know-how that's being that's not being shared and you need both of those things plus you need the um, machinery to be able to make the vaccines you need the people who are going to be trained in the um in the technology so that they're doing things properly. There are a whole bunch of things that are that are necessary, but they aren't being shared. Back a year ago, there was um, something called CTAP, which was set up. CTAP stands for COVID-19 Technology Access Pool. And okay. the idea there was that um, 
companies would voluntarily donate um, their information, their technical know-how, um, their training, um, their patents, and then other groups um, could make use of this. And although it's been up for a year, it's been endorsed by the World Health Organization. Um, it's been endorsed by over 40 countries. Not a single company has contributed to CTAP, um, which indicates that, I mean, that, that the companies, um, and let's give them credit for developing the vaccines as quickly as they did, are still sure. looking at the vaccines as a money-making venture. Mm -hmm. um, Pfizer is expected to earn $21 billion this year from selling vaccines. Moderna, I believe it's 17 or $18 billion. And at the same time, there's not a single um, plant in all of Africa that's at this point capable of making vaccines. Dr. Joe Election on the line from the University Health Network in Toronto. He's back with us today because he's written another piece at theconversation.com. Uh, Canada is virtue signaling while waffling on global access to COVID-19 vaccines. And Dr. Election, before the news, explain to us to a certain degree uh, what, for, what, what, what the arrangement is globally. Wealthy countries like Canada, the United States, the EU, and so on, have created a pool and uh, to share resources. It, uh, Dr. Election, you said this pool, the CTAP pool, has been up and running for about a year or a little more than that now. And no, uh, uh, none of the manufacturers of COVID vaccine, none of the drug companies are participating in this. So what's to share if we don't have the cooperation of the drug companies? Well, unfortunately, at this point, there's nothing to share. Um, and I'd just like to correct you um, Canada, the U.S., the U.K. Um, have not supported CTAP. Um, okay. Canada, I had conversations with some health, with some global global affairs people a year ago about this. Um, they waffled then on support, and there hasn't been any change in their position um, over that year. We do not support CTAP. Um, we have not said when we will be giving out any or donating any vaccines mm -hmm. to other countries. There is a move now at the World Trade Organization to temporarily suspend um, the rules around um, patent enforcement and um, technology, technology secret enforcement um, <clears throat> so that other other places in the world can can gear up to make vaccines. Sure. Canada is not supporting that waiver. Um, on the other hand, what we had last year, last June, was an op-ed in the Washington um, Post by um, a number of world leaders, the first one of which was um, Justin Trudeau, saying we're not, nobody is safe until everybody is safe. So we've got Trudeau saying one thing and mm -hmm. Canadian actions saying a completely different thing. 
Right. Well, saying one thing and doing nothing is is the way you summarized yeah. it in your paper. And and by the way, uh, to the point that the Pfizer exec made declaring this sharing, this technology access pool or CTAP, he said it's uh, it's nonsense and it's also dangerous. And and I would uh, just for clarification, Dr. Lection, uh, we, we, we are learning uh, a lot about vaccine manufacturing. Some companies like Pfizer have their own their own setup in Michigan, and they they do everything in house. Other companies like Johnson and Johnson, with their one shot, for example, they have the patent and the the ingredients, but they don't actually make it. They subcontract the manufacturing process, and we've got uh, thousands of Johnson and Johnson one and done shots sitting in warehouses in Canada because of quality control issues at the point of manufacture. And this is this is what makes. Uh, consumers a little nervous, Dr. Election, because we're, we're just coming to understand that the vaccine process is not always in-house. Sometimes it's a sort of a, a multi-step process, uh, including subcontractors along the way, which would, of course, be the way it would be handled around the world with the cooperation of countries like Canada, correct? Yes, that's true. I mean, <clears throat> And the process that you, <clears throat> you've described um, is pretty common. So the Moderna vaccine is made not by Moderna. It's made by a contract manufacturing organization in Switzerland. Then it's shipped to somewhere in Spain mm-hmm. to be put in the vials. Then it's shipped to uh, somewhere in the Netherlands. Um, so that it can be sent to around the world. Right. Um, <clears throat> so we see this kind of thing. And what um, there are a number of places in different countries, Israel, Bangladesh, even in Canada, where we have manufacturing facilities that would be able to make the vaccines um, similar to the way that they're being done by these contract manufacturing um, groups. Um, they would be able to make the vaccines, but they haven't been able to get the licenses to do so. Right. So, Dr. Election, uh, when you spoke to Global Affairs, our external affairs people last year, uh, and you made a pitch for all of this in the in the, in the time that's ensued since you had that conversation, they've done absolutely nothing. So given a second chance on Tuesday after the long, long weekend is over, if the government of Canada has a chance to make this right what would you have them announce on Tuesday morning? I would have them announce <clears throat> a number of things. So one is a clear timetable for vac- donation of vaccines. Um, that's clearly not going to solve the problem, but at least it will signal that Canada is taking this, this um, issue seriously. Mm-hmm. I would have them announce that they are supporting the waiver on the um, that's being proposed at the World Trade Organization on patents and technology secrets. Um, And I would have them announce this is something that's going to be coming up this coming week at the World Health Assembly. I would they're going to be talking about a pandemic R&D research and development treaty so that um, there would be clear guidelines set out for the next pandemic as to how things would be managed, and I would have them announce their um, support for that treaty. Unfortunately, 
um, given the what happened at the G20 meeting this past week in, I believe it was in London, um, Canada did not make any announcements mm-hmm. on any of these issues. Um, <clears throat> so I don't have a lot of faith that Canada is going to be very aggressive in, um, in what it's going to be doing to get make sure that the people around the world are vaccinated. Indeed. And, and by the way, Dr. Joel, just for the, for the sake of the listeners, because it's still early in the morning here in Vancouver, listening to some guy in Toronto talk about giving away our vaccines. Holy cow, we're not even, we've only got 3.5% of the population with a second shot in them. How can we be giving stuff away? I need to, to tell them that you wrote in your article, here's a direct quote, Canada has signed contracts for enough vaccine doses to inoculate every woman, man, and child in this country four times. So it's not here yet. Our rollout has been painfully slow, but it's on the way. So in terms of uh, easing concerns about domestic product and availability, uh, we, we we're, we're well looked after now, even though it's, it's taken a while to get to. So what you're projecting is beyond uh, being able to take care of ourselves. And you point out in your article, that is well handled. That's true. Um, I mean, we're going to be getting, well, it depends on what's happening with the Moderna vaccines, but we're supposed to be getting somewhere in the range of 40 million doses of vaccine from various companies um, by the end of June. Um, so we're well positioned now sure. to, to to make an announcement that starting middle of July, we're going to be donating vaccines because by the middle of July, we're going to be getting to the point where nearly anybody who wants a vaccine will have gotten it. Um, and we, we're hearing now about um, there's a new in the UK, for instance, where many more people have been fully vaccinated than in Canada. There's mm-hmm. now a new strain coming from that's been that's come from India, which is starting to circulate in the UK, causing people to get infected. Um, so there are always going to be new variants developing where the vaccine where the virus is running wild, mm-hmm. um, and those are going to make it back to rich countries. So unless we protect people in places like India, Brazil, I just heard about Argentina this morning. Unless those people are protected, we're not protected in the long run. Indeed. Uh, Dr. Lection, uh, a, a great opportunity to speak to you again. We appreciate your making some time for us, especially on the long weekend. Uh, but our, our, I'm wondering, final question to you, sir, is it likely, uh, given the inequality of vaccine distribution and the mutations and these creations of variants that seem to be uh, pretty, pretty consistent and pretty constant, uh, is it likely going forward that we're all pretty much going to have to reconcile ourselves to an annual COVID shot similar to the flu shot routine that so many of us already have? Well, I don't know that we know at this point whether or not it's going to be annual. It might be every two years. But what we do know is that we'll probably need booster shots We'll need yeah. booster shots for the entire world. That means if you're just if you're excluding kids under the age of 12, we're going to need about six billion doses a year. 
And right now we're only able to produce slightly over 3 billion doses of all the vaccines per year. So we've got to ramp up production and we also have to make sure that the booster shots are available at an affordable price. Pfizer, for instance, is saying that um, they would, although they're currently selling their vaccine at about $20 a dose, they expect vaccines to cost $150 to $175 a dose wow. um, when we get to the booster stage. So we've got to have double the production and make sure that the vaccines are available not at $150, which is unaffordable outside of the rich countries, but for $2, $3 a dose so mm-hmm. that everybody can get them. If you have a moment, folks, you slip over to theconversation.com and check out Dr. Lection's most recent contribution. It's Canada is virtue signaling while waffling on global access to COVID-19 vaccines. It's a good read, and uh, it'll, uh, well, it'll cause you to think. Uh, take a moment and think about our role in the big picture. Dr. Lection, great to have you back on the show, sir. Thanks for your time. We'll talk again soon. Thanks very much, Sterling, and have a nice long weekend. You too. There's Dr. Joe Election, an emergency room physician at the University Health Network in Toronto, where he is in a, also an associate professor in family and community medicine. Right now, though, we're going to talk workplace surveys. Uh, there's a, a significant disconnect between what employees say they need to balance work and caregiving responsibilities and what employers are offering, according to a new survey by Harris Poll that's been commissioned by the folks at Express Employment Professionals. And it's a real pleasure to welcome Brent Paulington back to the program. Mr. Paulington is the owner of the Vancouver office of Express Employment Professionals. Brent, good morning and welcome back. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us, Brent. This is an interesting survey, and it deals with something that you and I have talked about a number of times since this pandemic began, and it's good to have you back to check in uh, uh, on the employment uh, quotient of all of this. And one of the things that you've noted right from the beginning is the vulnerability of a certain uh, percentage in the workforce, those being parents and caregivers who, when uh, emergency circumstances arrive like, oh, a pandemic, their first responsibility is to their children and their families and their caregiving obligations. And many of them have left the workforce, Brent, uh, many of them still out, and many others still trying to balance that, the requirements of work and the caregiving responsibility. So let's talk a little bit about something that you and I have talked about before, but now that you've got even more time and more data to back up, let's talk about uh, workers and caregiving and, and their place in the workforce going forward. Yeah, well, um, I have a, a bit of a unique perspective on it as well as my wife owned a uh, childcare facility. And uh-huh. so one of the challenges that we've seen uh, is that with COVID, obviously, it makes it even more difficult for parents who have children that, you know, children get runny noses, they get cold, they, they have things like that that are, that are, you know, regular occurrences. And due to COVID protocols, those children aren't allowed to come to the, to the facility and they have to be symptom-free, I believe, for 24 or 48 hours before they're able to return. Uh-huh. And it puts a great strain on the parents who are paying uh, a significant amount of money for childcare uh, just for a situation like that where, where there may not be a COVID issue, but 
uh, out of the safety of, of the childcare facilities and, and avoid a, a potential spread. Uh, they're not able to bring the children. It's a service they're paying for. It puts yeah. huge strain on the family. A parent has to stay home potentially un- uh, unexpectedly, which yes. puts a strain on their relationship with their employer. There's so many stresses, and that's just for, for, for situations where they have childcare. I mean, there's a lot of situations where childcare isn't even available uh, because of the strains, the limited numbers that the facilities are able to take, uh, mm-hmm. and then just even people being able to manage the cost of childcare uh, while trying to uh, trying to survive in Vancouver, where it's obviously extremely expensive to live. Sure, and Brent, just 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 on that, to just carry it one step further, because you already mentioned it, uh, limitations on places in childcare. So, in your wife's situation, uh, because I'm gonna, my question was, since this pandemic began, I'll bet you the demand or the request for space from parents is just over the top. But are you are you restricted to a specific maximum number you can care for at any given time? Yeah, uh, restricted by number and by age yeah. group. So there's only a okay. certain uh, amount of pe- uh, uh, kids within certain ages. And I can tell you uh, uh, in, in the kindest way possible, my wife is probably the worst marketer of her business. Doesn't do any Googling or Facebook or any of that stuff. And her phone right. rings constantly, even just from referrals from other people, because people are desperate to try to try to find space for their children uh, and are locking spots up, you know, years in advance. Well, you know, uh, uh, let's dive into this survey a little bit, Brent, because it so specifically addresses some of the issues you've already raised. And you're just talking about, and this is as an observer uh, whose uh, who's, who's partner happens to be in the child care business, and you're just, this is anecdotal evidence. You've got some very deep statistical information here. The Harris people are very good. And they, so tell us about some of the findings, particularly, again, as you've already pointed out, for those parents who are particularly vulnerable vulnerable in terms of having to respond to uh, family emergencies and deal with that work-life balance in the process. Yeah, well, the, uh, the disconnect in the poll showed that about one in four companies reported that employees had left uh, due to care obligations, whether it's for a family member or for their children. Okay. Uh, while most of the hiring decision makers that were surveyed uh, believe that their company was doing the right amount to help uh, employers out. Uh, and so there's, there's, there's definitely a disconnect there. I mean, we've seen a lot of situations over the past year where uh, people's situations as a result of COVID, specifically around this childcare piece, uh, has proven to be challenging where they've been forced, uh, employers have been forced, uh, and in a lot of situations, innovate, and it's been for the better to ensure that they can support uh, you know, parents with whether it's work from home situations or even as mm-hmm. I noted, uh, a couple people we've spoken with have even uh, enabled the, the parents to bring their children to work. Uh, but the caveat is that it can't uh, overly affect uh, things in the office and be a disruption, which becomes sure. really challenging to do. I mean, uh, lots of offices are open office concept. There's COVID protocols and it's difficult, depending on the age of the child, to make sure that they're either you know, being uh, minded for and not disrupting people. Like, it, it's, it's just really challenging. And, of course, the employers, they're doing everything they can. But, you know, a lot of employers are really, uh, like, strapped right now and are in triage and trying to survive and to be asked to put, you know, additional measures in place and be even more flexible and, 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 and do all these things while they're trying to keep their heads above water. It just it, It's a lot to ask for everybody. And I think there's disconnect, but I don't think it's, you know, that it, it's intentional, unfair disconnect. Well, you know, and the other thing it would suggest, Brent, just as you describe both sides of the coin there, the the frustrated worker who's looking for perhaps a little more flexibility on the part of the employer, work share, more flexible hours, work from home, all of that kind of stuff. And the employer, 
On the other hand, with a company that is not doing anywhere near the kind of business it needs to to stay alive, desperately just trying to keep its head above water. So all of that uh, would add to a, a workplace environment, Brent, that sounds pretty darn stressful uh, for all parties concerned. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, we haven't had a, a situation I experienced the client of ours where uh, they did uh, allow uh, an individual to bring their child into work. This person was in uh, a logistics type of position, and they quickly realized that it just wasn't feasible for their business. Right. It put mm-hmm. a, a huge strain on both of them, and uh, the work suffered. Uh, they then tried to, to, to offer remote and realized that that wasn't feasible. Again, it was a very hands-on uh, but high-level logistics position, and ultimately that person decided that they needed to leave uh, due to their childcare situation. Uh, and again, the employer, you know, tried to accommodate and through that accommodation, they suffered uh, and the employer suffered as or the employee suffered as well. Like it just, there, there's tons of situations like that where, where the employer and the employee are trying to work together to figure it out. But just with the strain that everybody's been put under with that childcare system or with the healthcare system, it, it, the survey wasn't just specifically about childcare because it did mention about caring for, for loved ones and relatives who may oh, have, sure, uh, exactly. you know, yeah, come under health issues. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and so it just, I think everybody's trying, uh, but at the end of the day, the business needs to be able to operate. It needs to be profitable, and you can't, you can't make all these accommodations and do it at a significant loss. It's just it's not what the business is there for. Joined by Brent Pollington from Express Employment Professionals. They've just released a new survey basically talking about employees wanting help balancing caregiving responsibilities, but companies, employers saying they don't have the resources. And Brent, this is a pretty a pretty dodgy situation because of the stress levels involved, both on the employee side, struggling to, 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 to stay employed um, in many cases and, and dealing with caregiver responsibilities and so on, and companies of of course, just trying to keep their workforce or uh, as much of their workforce as they can afford to keep on side. Now, in the survey, uh, did you talk at all about any uh, programs other than uh, employer-based programs? For example, the feds have jumped in and since the pandemic. We have had CERB and various other wage subsidies and other subsidies to business. Did any of those programs come up in your survey questions at all? And if so, what did people have to say about them? Uh, yeah, I don't believe it was something that was brought uh, into the survey. I mean, I know right now times are really challenging and, and, and there are a lot of, uh, obviously, uh, like opportunities available to both the employers and the employees. Uh, it's tough. I mean, I, I don't know if there's anyone that has that silver bullet, but I feel like, you know, again, the government has put a bunch of initiatives in place for, for both parties and continue to evolve. And I, I think it's just uh, a moving target. Uh, and, and I feel like they're, uh, or at least listening and, and trying to put things in place and trying to help. Well, you know, again, of course, we're talking a lot about universal health care, I'm sorry, universal child care. There is an election coming at some point this year. That's going, we're getting political here, but very briefly, uh, because this is one platform plank the Liberals are going to roll out, uh, and it's going to be hugely expensive, but I think it's going to be pretty popular in terms, again, uh, as the pandemic has taught us a lesson, Brent, that is absolutely unavoidable for many millions of Canadian workers without some kind of a, a more reliable childcare arrangements, uh, the workforce, a, a good percentage of the workforce remains at a sort of state of constant jeopardy, don't they? Yeah, well, again, uh, a quarter of the uh, the respondents uh, stated situations where employees had to leave to uh, 
to support either either their um, uh, children or, or family members. And yeah, it's just it's just really challenging times. I mean, we're uh, we're seeing a, a a big gap in the um, in the, in the unemployment space where where there are definitely companies looking to hire. There's people that mm-hmm. are bouncing back. There's there's lots of activity on the job boards. Uh, and, and again, we've got that skill gap that we've talked about before. That's still an issue where there's employers that are, you know, struggling to, to find those, the, the, the technically, uh, experienced people to, to solve problems for their company. And then, yeah, even when they do, and they're like, I've seen a lot of accommodation on the employer side and, and I've seen, um, and oddly enough, uh, I think it's about 70% of people want to return to the office uh, mm-hmm. and only about mm-hmm. 30% are, are looking to be 100% remote. And there's definitely some, some kind of flexible situations in between, but employers are really trying and, and have innovated and, and done so in a very uh, quick manner uh, over the last you know, year and change to, uh, to, to manage through this pandemic. And yet still it, it poses challenges for both sides. Like there's definitely, definitely a, a disconnect uh, and the employees are, are feeling the strain for sure. Like, and like you said, it, it's a very stressful situation yeah. and I, I do feel the employers are doing everything they can, but, but you're right. There may be, uh, maybe some need or at least some opportunity for, for someone to come up with a creative solution for childcare and, and just for, uh, for helping businesses and, and employees together. I mean, we have to get through this thing together and, and it's the only way that we'll, uh, we'll really bounce back from, from where we're at. Brett, let's uh, let's end this conversation on a positive note because you just mentioned moments ago there are lots of opportunities on the job boards, and I'm starting to see things in the local papers where you know so and so is hiring 400 new workers over the spring, and we've got our reopening announcement hopefully coming on Tuesday. It's not going to all happen by lunchtime on Tuesday, but we'll have a master plan, knowing that we can breathe a little more deeply soon. Uh, so, uh, talk to us about the work opportunities available right now on this weekend yeah absolutely we continue to see uh, great opportunities in the construction space companies are always looking to hire skilled workers but are open to uh, general labors that are are open to to learning developing and really they're looking for people with that aptitude that motivation and, and who are looking for work we've seen a lot of people that have been on the uh the subsidies and we're actually seeing a, a, um, a lot of workers looking to return to the workforce now. Right. Uh, so we're seeing lots of great people coming through, uh, but but not enough to, uh, to outweigh the opportunities. But I would say for sure, like warehouse manufacturing, uh, construction, trades, carpentry. And then we're seeing lots of office positions starting to open up. Uh, reception and men, uh, I think companies are starting to see the opportunity to return back to the office and are slowly yeah. looking to to allow people to do that because the workers do want to return to the office for the most part. Uh, and so we're seeing those, those needs for those support positions. And of course, just across the board, all the skilled positions seem like they're always in demand. Indeed. Brent, I've uh, got to let you go. Cause I'm out of time very quickly. Uh, help us with my buzz line question this morning. Who do you think is going to win the Stanley cup this year? Yeah, I think I'd have to go the easy pick and go with the, uh, the avalanche there. Hey, Hey, all right. I'm pick. I'm picking Colorado yeah. as well. Thanks for this, Brent. Always yeah, great to you. have you on board. We appreciate the survey work that you you provide and all the background stuff as well. Good energy and good to have you back this morning. Thanks so much.
There's Brent Paulington from Express Employment Professionals. And if you happen to be one of those individuals or know someone looking for a job this weekend, Google Express Employment Professionals. As Brent points out, there's lots of work to be had. It's a pleasure to introduce our next guest. A group of plastic industry leaders is launching a court challenge of the Canadian government's designation of plastic goods as toxic and saying the government should focus on recycling efforts as a solution. Quote, we think that it doesn't address the real problem, which is plastic waste, not the toxicity of plastic, says the executive director, Randy Rahim, who said most of the everyday uh, terms we use are, are plastic. And here's another quote. We need to have a solution that addresses the real problem. We want policy based on science, not politics. Randy Rahamim is the executive director of the Responsible Plastic Use Coalition, uh, who is joining us from Toronto this morning to talk more about this. Randy, good morning. Thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Good morning, Sterling. So tell us a little bit about, uh, first of all, the Responsible Plastics Use Coalition. This is a group of the uh, made up of the plastic manufacturers who have come together to oppose the government's toxicity initiative. How long have you been around? So actually not that long, Sterling. A group of uh, companies across the country, large and small, have come together to basically um, challenge the government's, as you said, the government's uh, designation of all plastic manufactured items as toxic. So whether that's the phone that we're talking on or the glasses that I'm wearing or the AirPods in my ears as we speak or the computer that I'm looking at as I'm talking to you, all those things would be declared toxic uh, if the government's program um, uh, went through. And so our organization is, uh, is taking the government to court. Uh, we are trying to uh, advocate for solutions that really address the real problem. So be that increased recycling infrastructure or better waste management, we all, I think, can agree that nobody wants to see plastic waste in the environment, whether that's a water bottle or a straw or sure. anything that we all use in our everyday life. We don't want to see that in the environment. So let's find solutions to get it out of the environment. But to say that all plastic manufactured items are toxic, including PPE and the oxygen mask that you wear when you, when you are, God forbid, in the hospital, I mean, that just seems a little bit of an overreach. Mm-hmm. Well, now the, the feds will come back at you, Randy, and they'll say, look, we appreciate that. Uh, you know, it's a nice sentiment wanting to recycle plastics and all the rest of it. But less than 10 percent of all plastics in Canada right now gets recycled. So it's 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 beyond a problem. It's an urgent problem. It is an urgent problem. And we would agree with the government on that. And just so uh, so that all of our listeners are aware Uh, The plastic manufacturers and the provinces have been working hard together to figure out, okay, what do we need to change from a recycling perspective so that we're better using this this product? Right. So um, I think that's the solution. That's where we need to focus our investment and our efforts. Uh, This label, though, it's nice to say that you're doing something about an issue. Um, Doing the wrong thing is not effective. So I think that if the government needs to need to look at the fact that that only nine percent of plastics are recycled and say what do we need to do to increase our recycling infrastructure so that we're doing a better job of that like who's to blame for that i think we all have to work together to fix that 
Uh, let's talk a little bit, too, about the fact about the politics of all of this, because there is yeah. there is a certain element of pandering going on here, Randy. Uh, I can say it if you don't want to, but I think this is a part of this declaration of all plastics to be toxic is partly pan- pandering to the environmental lobby, because, of course, p- plastic and the production of plastics is in some to some extent uh, dependent very much on the extraction of fossil fuels. So if you declare this product to be toxic, then you're pandering to the the anti-fossil fuel lobby. And in terms of the election that's looming large on the horizon, that's a significant voting block for the Liberal Party. Right. And it's a bit of an environmental crusade with blinders on. I think that if you look at some of the some of the alternatives to plastic, uh, oftentimes they're much worse for the environment. Um, so, uh, you know, when we think about pulp and paper mills and what it takes to actually produce paper, when you look at the overall environmental footprint of some of these alternative products, I mean, they're not, uh, it's not like there's a, there's a, a white knight waiting in the wings, right? We are consumers. We rely on consumer products that are made of paper, that are made of plastics. We have to be responsible as producers, but also as consumers to say, what are we going to do to tackle this problem? And I think that, um, you know, though there, is, though there is a lot of this is political. I mean, we all know that Justin Trudeau made a promise to ban uh, certain single use plastics. Yep. Um, it was part of his campaign promise. Um, I think that we have more of an issue with the wide ranging Um, effects of a toxic designation that effectively puts a giant question mark on the industry. When you have, you know, this sounds a bit wordy, but when you have regulatory uncertainty, companies are are struggling to say, should I, should I invest in Canada? Like, Mm -hmm. should I continue to invest here? Should I, should I expand my, my facility? Should I continue to hire more people? And, you know, we like to think of it, of the plastics industry as big industry, but our coalition is made up of a lot of large employers in small towns. Uh, so I think of, for example, uh, Emerson Recycling in in, Nova, in Amherst, Nova Scotia. You know, they're the lar- one of the largest employers in that small town. We're talking about real livelihoods, real jobs, real communities. Um, that and and you know, though we all agree, I think where the government and industry agrees, there is a plastic waste problem. Mm-hmm, sure. So let's come to the table to aggressively tackle it together. Uh, Let's not put in place uh, reckless regulations that will tarnish an industry. And Canada is alone in this. There's no other country that's declared plastics, all plastic manufactured items toxic. Mm -hmm. Well, it's an extreme step. There's no question about it, Randy. So you uh, respond to this sort of extreme measure uh, with uh, what you consider to be an equally powerful response. You're going to take the feds to court. Hopefully the case will be heard sometime in the summer, likely in August. What do you intend to argue at court? Well, I think there are a number of arguments. The first is around, you know, this is unprecedented, um, that we, you know, that the, the toxic substances list under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act bans a bunch of substances. It doesn't take into account an entire category of substances. So it's got things like lead and asbestos, which when we think about them, we think about them as toxic substances. Sure, yeah. So this is somewhat unprecedented. Um, also, jurisdiction. I mean, this uh, plastic waste is a, is a provincial uh, is a provincial issue, and the provinces have been working on this and it's sort of unique for the federal government to stick its neck out and say, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to take over now. Uh, You know, this is, this is our jurisdiction. Um, And so I think we're going to be continuing to, 
um, to try and push on that on that front. And also that plastic simply isn't toxic. I mean, the science doesn't back a toxic designation. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, it, this is to some degree a bit of a political shortcut to try right. and implement single-use plastic bans. But the, but the method actually has a whole bunch of unintended consequences that, that we, don't, we would like to stop. So the outcome that you would see, the preferred outcome would be to have a federal court judge somewhere declare the, uh, the uh, government's designation of all things plastic as toxic to be stricken from the record, to make the feds back away from that definition. Yes, that we think SEPA is the wrong tool, that the Canadian Environmental Protection Act is the wrong tool to tackle this. We agree there's a problem with plastic waste. We want to get sure. to the table. with If the federal government wants to come to the table with the provinces and industry, we will work hard together to come up with, uh, to come up with a national framework um, that will basically uh, tackle the problem of plastic waste but avoid negative consequences like jo- on, jo- on jobs, on consumers, and on the environment, frankly. Like if we're, if we're really trying to pursue this in the name of the environment, Mm-hmm. Uh, then we then we have to come together because these these flashy alternatives are not always better for the environment. Interesting stuff. We're speaking with the executive director of the Responsible Plastic Use Coalition, Randy Rahamim, joining us from Toronto. Randy, a change of uh, pace and gears for your last question of the morning. My question to my Vancouver listeners here on a Saturday morning of the long weekend is. Who's going to win the Stanley Cup? You being in Toronto might be be somewhat biased, but I'd be interested in your predictions, please. Well, I've got two sons that's downstairs that would kill me if I said anything other than the Toronto Maple Leafs. There you go. (laughs) And there's great (laughs) excitement in Toronto because of that this year. It's been a long time since 1967. Indeed it has. Indeed it has. Randy, thanks for this. We appreciate your giving us a little time on a long weekend. Uh, We'll be watching the Leafs along with you and your family this afternoon as well. Thank you, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. There's Randy Rahamim, the executive director of the Responsible Plastic Use Coalition. Google them. Find out what they're about and uh, see whether you agree with the position they've taken. Are all plastics, just by definition of being plastic, toxic? That's what the feds would like you to believe. So there you go. Canucks fans are left dreaming again at the season of uh, another round of playoffs that could have been that didn't happen. A pleasure to welcome Rob Williams back to the program. Rob is the sports director at the Daily Hive, was uh, uh, one of the participants in the year-end press conference Jim Benning and Travis Green held yesterday. Travis uh, Green, uh, of course, had his contract extended uh, yesterday to one of the announcements. Rob, good morning. Hey, Sterling, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, Your first line in the column you wrote yesterday, Francesco Aquilini is keeping the band together despite (laughs) objections from fans. And we had that plane flying over the city again a week or two ago with the hashtag fire Benning uh, thing uh, hanging off the end of it, that message plane, uh, obviously ignored by Canucks ownership. A dreadful season, mercifully over. Where do we end up in terms of draft because of ending up last in the North Division, Rob? Where do we we go on, on the draft? Yeah, uh, I mean, we're going to we're gonna have to wait and see for the draft lottery, but they're going to have the ninth best odds of, of securing the first overall draft pick. So it's still, I mean, it's still a remote chance. It's, a, it's around a, you know, in and around 5% chance of them actually 
uh, jumping up for the top pick and, you know, they've got another, you know, about a 10% chance of getting a top two pick sort of thing. So it's, you know, that's a 90% chance that they remain where they are. Um, but yeah, they, I mean, you know, dreadful season. It, it was, um, they were the eighth worst team in the national hockey league this year. Mm-hmm. They, they get the ninth, they get the ninth, the ninth best odds because, uh, of course, the Seattle Kraken are coming into the league and they're going to have the third best odds at, at securing the, uh, the first overall pick. Ah, okay. So I guess a lot of fans just kind of surprised that both Benning and Green had their deals extended with the team. Uh, Benning about, uh, I remember the mid-season presser he held a a, a couple of months back that you also attended. And he talked about, well, you know, it's going to be a couple more years. And, (laughs) you know, that, that wasn't exactly the most exciting news that we really wanted to hear halfway through the season. This is before all the COVID stuff too, Rob. And yet... Uh, 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 fans a little mystified as to as to why they continue with the current GM coaching tandem, uh, given the fact that there are a few uh, coaches out there looking for work this week. Yeah, you, you know, I mean, it, it really is puzzling. I mean, since um, since uh, Jim Benning's second season in charge, the Canucks have the fourth worst winning percentage in the National Hockey League, uh, just barely above the Ottawa Senators and mm-hmm. ahead of the Detroit Wing- Red Wings. And I mean, thankfully, the Buffalo Sabres have been really, really <laughs> a tire fire. So they're, they're ahead of them. So they, they have that to hang their hats on. Um, I, I do think that people were surprised that I, I think the big surprise was that Travis Green was extended, and that's not because I, because he's not a good coach. I think I think most fans and and most people around the league uh, thought it was the right decision to bring back Green. He's been in charge for four years, and the team has, uh, of course, developed its young stars admirably. So mm-hmm. you know, I think you need to credit him for that. Uh, and they had improved each year under his guidance and and you know certainly i think we saw uh, an improvement over uh, the previous coach Willie Desjardins i think that the the part where fans are really starting to uh, get louder with their displeasure is with Jim Benning uh, he really has mismanaged the salary cap i mean he's brought in a, a, a number of good young players you know he has had high draft picks but mismanaging the cap has been his downfall, um, you know, and, and the team's really paying for it right now. And I, I think, you, you know, you referenced the the Canucks being, you know, he said two years away. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that that was accurate. But the reason for that is is because they've just spent so much money on so many, you know, players that don't contribute much to the to the team's success. Yeah. Uh, let's move uh, f- uh, on because we don't have all the time in the world and there's lots of wonderful hockey action going on right now, Rob. Who do you think, by the way, the buzz line question has been on the on open for a couple of hours. We're just getting, a, a no, there's no consensus. A couple of people agree with me. I'm putting my big $5 wager, last of the big time spenders, on the avalanche. Who do you think is going to win the cup this year after it's all done, Rob? Yeah, you know what? I think the the two teams that I really have my eye on are the uh, you know the Colorado Avalanche, who have just been outstanding and just blown right through the St. Louis Blues. They're up three nothing. Yeah. Uh, the other team is the Tampa Bay Lightning, who didn't have uh-huh. the best season in the world, but they they had their best player Nikita Kucherov had missed the whole season, and they got him back just in time for the playoffs. So, 
I, I think I lean towards Tampa. I think that they've got, uh, you, you know, they really don't have any weak spots whatsoever. But I, I could see a Colorado-Tampa Stanley Cup final with Tampa repeating this chance. Interesting stuff. Has it been as entertaining for you as it has been for me to watch Connor McDavid be completely tied into a pretzel by the Winnipeg Jets? Guy hasn't got one point in two games. This, the kid who scored over 100 in 56. <laughs> Uh, I somewhat feel bad for Connor McDavid, but, you know, the, the Edmonton Oilers being such a rival of the Canucks, uh, it kind of it, it warms my heart to see them, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it start to kind of uh, look like they might um, might choke here against Winnipeg, uh, a team that they've, uh, they you know, they owned this year uh, and, and were heavily favored uh, against. And, yeah, how on earth is, is Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, for that matter, as well, both being just shot out so far so i don't know if it'll last but uh but they've dug themselves a hole now for sure and how about the other series only a couple of seconds left but what about that toronto montreal series that game uh there's a game this afternoon as a matter of fact yeah uh i think game one you know largely overshadowed uh by the you know gruesome injury to john Tavares, who hopes sure, he's all right yeah. he's out of hospital right now um but yeah i mean that's uh you know talk about you know, if you're a Canucks fan and you and you want to take some joy out of some other team's misery, uh, there's no better team to do that than the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, <laughs> pre- the pressure, the pressure is really on Toronto now. I mean, they were, you know, very they, they were the, you know, by the odds maker, the the biggest favorite going into their series, uh, and you know they've had trouble getting out of the first round for a few years now, and if they can't do it this year uh, against Montreal. Um, that is going to be one tough pill to swallow. I don't know what they'll do. No, no kidding. And a great line, by the way, down the road from uh, Ron Francis and the folks at the Seattle Kraken uh, the day uh, after the Canucks season ended, uh, suggesting that we're now accepting uh, new fans. That was a terrific line, and hopefully Rob's setting up what's going to, over the years, become just a wonderful, wonderful Vancouver-Seattle rivalry. Thanks for this this morning. We'll check back with you as the playoffs continue to roll out. We appreciate it. Sounds great. Anytime. There's Rob Williams, sports director of the Daily Hive. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.